Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. We're recording this week's Telecast in Cannes as MIP TV, the world's second biggest content market, gets underway. Despite travel disruption for many as airlines struggle with COVID-related staff shortages, the TV industry came together once again on the Quasette to meet, greet, buy, sell and debate the future of the TV industry. My guests on this week's bumper show include head of HBO Max International, Johannes Larcher, TV futurist Sandra Lerner, CEO of M Content, Umer Masoum, Dutch Filmworks boss Willem Prusius, and MIP TV boss Lucy Smith. Plus, we have a secret guest familiar to many going back to the very beginning of this podcast. It's all coming up on this week's Telecast MIP TV special. My first guest on this week's Telecast MIP TV special is Johannes Larscher, head of HBO Max International. Welcome to the show, Johannes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to have you on the show. Obviously, it's a big week for HBO and you know, lots of exciting plans coming up. Before we get into talk a little bit about that, the HBO brand is, to me, really stands out as a really valuable brand. And it's, that's key for you when you're actually going to be competing for the top three global streamers place. What do you think the HBO brand means to people? Well, it depends a little bit on where you are, right? In the US, HBO obviously means one thing, been around for many, many decades. It means premium quality storytelling, distinctive series in particular that uh, are the best in class. In other parts of the world, the HBO brand means very little. Uh, If you go to Japan, HBO has very little meaning. We don't have channels there. We don't have a consumer-facing service. We license our content to partners. Uh, So HBO for the woman or man on the street in Tokyo means nothing. 
or very little. So the answer is geography dependent. When I think about HBO Max, though, what's important is that HBO Max is a lot more than HBO. It is all of the very best Warner Media content under one roof from all of our factories. Whether it is HBO, where we are the exclusive home of HBO content online, it is the DC multiverse and all the beloved characters that come with it. It is Warner Brothers movies, Hey One movies, but also later Windows. It is Cartoon Network. It is Max Originals, which are distinctive and different from HBO Originals. So it's all of that, plus, obviously, depending on location, again, licensed content, best-in-class content, great storytelling from third-party independent content producers and studios. The HBO brand itself is obviously synonymous with quality, but we're broadening that brand aggressively and rapidly to be a much more inclusive brand that speaks to everyone, not just a traditional HBO customer who was maybe more male, more urban, more affluent. This is a service in HBO Max that is intended for everyone in the family, whether they are young, old, live in the city, live in the countryside, are wealthy or less affluent. It's for everyone. It's a broad general entertainment service. And we think that the the tent we are creating with HBO Max is big enough to have room for everyone. Now, you, you launched in Latin markets, first of all. What was the thinking behind that? And what have you learned from it that you're taking forward into the global rollout? Latin America launched in June of 2021, so a bit more than eight months ago now. And it was a natural starting place for us because we'd been operating very successfully HBO channels there for many, many years. First for a joint venture and then recently as fully owned channels uh, that we controlled. We'd also launched HBO Go There as a streaming service, first as a TV everywhere platform, then also as a consumer-facing direct-to-consumer service in streaming. The right situation was favorable, our own rights were available, and clearly we saw a need in the market and an opportunity in the market based on the success of other streamers in the region. Netflix had 35 million subscribers, I think, in Latin America when we started looking at the opportunity, now they're at 40. So we saw big opportunity, great rights, a brand that meant something to consumers, and the timing was simply right to start there. Plus, it, it also helps that it's roughly in the same time zone as, as the U.S. So we started there. We, we, we've learned a lot of things uh, since then. It's gone very, very well. Uh, you would have seen our numbers for 2021. We basically took a flat to declining service outside the U.S. from less than 20 million subscribers to 27 million subscribers. This is all ex-U.S. combined, not just Latin. But in six months, we added over 7 million subscribers. What's gone well for us in Latin America are, are a few things. One, we've really customized the service to the, to the Latin American fan and audience. Uh, we worked really, really hard being driven by the audience first and foremost. And unlike other streamers, we try very hard to localize the service and make it a service from the region for the region. How do we do that? Well, a few things. One is obviously content, significant investment in local original storytelling. But not only do we produce dramas and comedies and now reality content and non-scripted content for Latin America in Latin America, we also added content that is third party. We added live soccer. We are the exclusive home for all of uh, UEFA Champions League in Brazil and Mexico. These, these countries are are a little bit obsessed with, with soccer Just or football, bit. as you might know. And that's worked out very well for us. So content localization, customization, tailoring our offer to what is 
relevant and popular in the country really matters based on data. And there was a lot of mobile first viewers when it comes to Latin America, aren't there? Because basically there's a product that you created purely for people watching video on mobiles. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because one of the insights we had when we when we were in the research phase was that a large number of Latin American internet users access the net only through their mobile device out of economic necessity. So they don't have broadband at home. They don't have the big television sets at home that are connected to the internet. They use their smartphone as the way to access the internet. So for that reason, we saw an opportunity to create a service that we didn't have at the time in the United States, which is a mobile-first product. So you get to access the full catalog of HBO Max content, but it's only on mobile devices. It's only a single stream at any given time, but it is at a more affordable price that puts the service more in reach of those kinds of demographics. And, and might you replicate that in other markets where that might be appropriate? You know, Absolutely. If you've tried it already and it works, then you may be... Like the Indian market, for example, or various other Potentially, markets? potentially. Yeah. So absolutely. And I think you're hitting the point on the nail here, which is we are not dogmatic or religious when it comes to what service model we deploy in which market. We want to do what is right for each particular market. In Europe, we've chosen for the most part to only offer a single tier of our service, the standard SWOT tier. But in the Netherlands, where we just launched on March 8th, we actually offer a standard tier and a basic tier. So whatever is right for each particular market based on a lot of insight, a lot of research, we will do. So uh, absolutely should expect in the future that you will see continued business model innovation and product innovation from HBO Max in that direction. So that tailored rollout for those each particular market, for a market like the Netherlands, you say, or and LATAM, for example, that, tell us a bit about the logistical challenge of rolling out HBO Max in different forms, in different price points, in different tailored offers into over 100 markets, right? You're planning on over the next 12 months? Yeah, our, our ambition is to be in 190 countries by 2026. We're, we're currently in 61, so we're about a third of the way there. Right. Got a ways to go. Uh, we want to be everywhere we can can legally operate, obviously, and and uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, that that list got a little shorter a few weeks ago when yeah. Russia took itself out of competition. There is complexity involved in all of this, and obviously, we we are a young service. We we don't have the twelve plus years of history that Netflix has, and we have roadmap decisions to make in terms of allocation of resources between improving the existing service, adding new features and capabilities, for example, to our U.S. service versus rolling out in new territories. So that's a constant trade-off. I think we've managed that balance pretty well. Is there more I would like uh, on the international front? Yes. I'll give one example, payment methods. In, in a market like Latin America, a large percentage of the population is unbanked or underbanked. Uh, and in order to transact business with them, you need to have availability of alternative payment methods, whether that's digital wallets or even cash-based voucher redemptions that happen in the convenience store at the corner. You have to accommodate for people to pay the way they want to pay. We're not where we want to be in that regard. We just launched in the Netherlands with Ideal, which is the single most popular way of paying for uh, e-commerce in the Netherlands. Uh, we got that done. It works beautifully. It's incredibly popular with our subscribers in the Netherlands. But there's a lot more to be done there. Um, so yes, it's it's a constant trade-off uh, between what you would like and what is reasonable and doable versus all the other priorities that exist in the business. I was 
looking briefly at the, the various different content houses, if you like, that sit within HBO Max, Warner Brothers, HBO, DC, Cartoon Network, Max Originals, and some of the titles that, uh, that you have you know, already established, but also coming down the line, House of the Dragon is obviously probably the biggest tentpole of the year that anyone has, so that's going to be exciting to see that rolls out. But, you know, looking at the list of Euphoria, Succession, Batman, Batwoman, Wonder Woman, some Suicide Squad, for example, those are, you know, obviously huge global entry points for, for consumers. But you talked about local content versus global. So you looking to create and commission local content in every single market you roll out to. For example, you mentioned Netherlands. Would you be looking to commission local content for that market, for, for such a small market? Can you just tell us a little bit more about that local strategy that you're we're, being We're adopted? incredibly fortunate at HBO Max that we get to be, and at Warner Media, we get to be the stewards of incredible content franchises and IPs. We are the only place in Max territories where you will find Harry Potter. We are the home of Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, August 21st. Winter is coming again. It will be, it will be amazing. We have Friends. We have Big Bang Fury. We have the DC Multiverse and Warner Brothers movies. The Batman coming to our services uh, in the near term here in Europe and around the world. So we're incredibly fortunate. However, local audiences are local and local tastes vary. And we've been producing great original content in Europe, in Latin America, and Asia for HBO for many, many years. We are doubling down on that commitment. We believe there are distinctive stories and highly talented storytellers, creatives, who deserve to be heard and who deserve to be uh, working with us on our platform. So yes, we are stepping up investment in Europe. We've talked about next year, I think we have about 30 to 40 projects in the pipeline. We are going into new countries where we have previously not produced original content. The Netherlands is one of them. Uh, I don't know that we've announced any specifics yet, but we're definitely working on that. Uh, Vera Paltekian is leading our commissioning here in France, and uh, we'll be making some announcements about that not too far from now. Of course, we can't be in every country. We are not about to produce in Andorra, which is one of the countries we launched in October. We are producing in markets that uh, are maybe not known as much for great content yet. Uh, we're producing in Romania. We're producing in Poland and Hungary. We are in the major markets absolutely making a commitment to produce great content. Some of the smaller markets, uh, obviously, uh, not so much at this point. If you were, for example, a UK producer, and you're obviously wanting to produce, and obviously there's, you know, there's a huge number of established, incredibly talented content creators in the UK, for example, they're not really going to have the opportunity to work with you on any locally created content because the service isn't going to be available for a few years uh, in the UK. If you were them, would, would you suggest that they would partner up with perhaps some of these producers in some of the territories you are looking to commission original content to give them an opportunity to bring great stories to you for those local markets. We will get to the UK eventually, there's no doubt. Uh, we have a, a thriving partnership with Sky that is lucrative for both parties, but it's a time-limited partnership. So eventually we will get there. Uh, as you know, producing great content takes time and many years to get from an idea to a great show. So uh, the time to talk is, is certainly not, not far away for UK producers. We've also created originals in and with the UK. Personal favorite of mine was This Is Us, uh, which is in the US is a, a Max original. A fantastic show uh, that, that was incredibly distinctive and worth telling. 
So yes, there are there are opportunities there, uh, and and once we launch in the UK, that that investment and commitment will only grow. For now, of course, there are opportunities uh, across Europe to partner and work with HBO for our Max service. Uh, Anthony Root is the person leading our efforts on originals in Europe, based in London, uh, and uh, he's the guy to talk to with anything interesting. Okay. So you mentioned sports, live programming and sports programming in uh, Brazil, uh, the uh, Champions League. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, the in Europe, the sports rights market is a different in a, of a different order of magnitude when it comes to you know the, those sort of rights. But equally, there seems to be growing demand for women's sports, for example, and alternative sports, whether that be. Esports, drone racing, you know, alternative types of sport that are developing and actually starting to build with younger audiences. And we're, there's a lot of discussion at uh, MIP TV this time about about Gen Z and uh, and how to keep Gen Z audiences interested in TV and and engaged. Can you give us an idea of perhaps your direction of travel when it comes to sports in Europe, or is it just a case of we're going to wait until uh, we're in a position to 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 look at those sort of top level sports rights or maybe that's just like well we're not even going to look at it that's not it's not in our ballpark at the moment sports is incredibly powerful right it creates community and interest uh it helps services like ours acquire customers retain and engage customers the problem with sports is that it is somebody else's ip we rent it for a limited period of time. Kevin just talked in his keynote about uh, the zone and, and how these deals are free-year deals typically, and then they come up for renewal, and uh, obviously the, the rights owners go to wherever the most money is. So sports are challenging. We saw an opportunity in Latin America that, that made sense, and I think it's panned out for us. In Europe, as you say, the table stakes are much higher, and we have not found at this point a, a, an opportunity or a reason to believe in an opportunity that was strong enough. And then it comes down to next dollar investment decisions and allocation decisions. You know, we are a general entertainment service. That's our core. We come from a tradition of scripted entertainment and storytelling, 100 years of Warner Brothers coming up next year. And I think that's the core and the focus. Does that preclude us from potentially doing something with sports in Europe in the future? No, it doesn't. Do I find the bar to be pretty high for that? Yes, I do. And one more question, Jan, and this is a personal one from me because I'm a huge Curb Your Enthusiasm fan. Are we going to see another series? I hope so. Uh, it's one of my personal favorites as well. I do hope so. I think the last season was very strong. It was very entertaining. I don't have any news to break on that, but I'm, I sure am in the same boat as you. I hope we will. We look forward to the rollout, seeing the rollout of the brand. And I believe you're you're going to be speaking at NEM in Dubrovnik in a uh, in a few weeks' time. Is Christina right? Christina Solibak, who oh, is our uh, who's our head of uh, Europe uh, for HBO Max, she will be in Dubrovnik and speaking there. Yes. All right, fantastic. Well, we look forward to that as well. Johannes, thank you so much for joining us on Telecast. Really enjoyed our discussion. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. My next guest from Cannes and this week's MIP TV special show is Umer Masum. Founder and CEO of M Content. Welcome to Telecast, Umer. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. So tell us about M Content, because we've seen bits and pieces in the news over the last few weeks, notably a piece in Variety a couple of days ago. But for those who don't know about M Content, give us an overview of the business and how it started. So basically, M Content came about around a year ago. And it came from the central idea that we believe that there is an opportunity to decentralize the content economy globally. 
And I think that's the biggest strength of the blockchain, that the blockchain has the potential to decentralize an existing economy, and it could be any economy, right? I personally feel that um, the content industry globally is centralized. It is controlled by a few companies, studios, OTT platforms. While it's great for a few, it tends to reduce opportunities for others, right? Right. And that is the power of Web3. That's the power of the blockchain. You know, you identify any industry where you feel the need for decentralization and you can create an economy which is controlled by people. In this case, our, our economy is all about giving ownership to the viewers. And we believe that through our efforts, the way it is headed right now, there are other players also jumping in. And we feel that things are going to change and things are going to change disruptively. Uh, we've already started the world's first watch-to-earn platform, and it's amazing the kind of traction that we're getting. I feel things are going to change faster than we anticipate. We feel it's going to take, you know, let's say three to four years before the next phase comes in. But if you ask me, it's only a matter of months. All right. Okay. Well, uh, we love a bit of disruption and talking about the breaking up of established models and the creation of new ones. So that's exciting. So you're based in Dubai, is that yes. right? Yes. So we have your head office in Dubai, but now we have like a global team that we're expanding as we speak. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, there are huge markets when it comes to content and crypto, which includes the US, EU itself, even Africa for that matter. We're, we're trying to get into Asian markets as well. So right now we have a team of around 30 people that are spread across five continents. And yes, Dubai is our base. That's where we started from. Uh, when MContent was actually started, it was something that started over the internet. You know, a group of 12 to 14 people who who sort of met online on a medium called Telegram. I don't know if you know about yeah, it. I've yeah, I've heard about Telegram. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's where we met and that's where I started this journey. And now all of those people are in Dubai. They're based in Dubai full time. And we expand as we go. And it's incredible. It seems to be an incredibly fast-growing company. I know you've hired former Insight executive Aaron Malyars to run, I guess, the commissioning side of the business. But we'll come and touch on that in a second. So first of all, for any more traditional TV industry audience that are listening to this, give us an idea of how you're funded then. Because I think with any company, any new company, coming into the marketplace, it's really important to know, are new businesses secured? Are they funded? Up to what point are they funded? How secure can you be? Particularly when you're a disruptive business. So give us an idea of that. So there are two aspects to the funding, and I'll take you through both aspects separately. So the first aspect is the institution, right? So so our institution is obviously backed by four four very, very significant entities in the UAE. And uh, we have like... um, our, our main sponsor is one of the largest conglomerates in Dubai. They're into 27 different businesses and they're huge. So, you know, as far as our core funding is concerned, we are very well sorted. We are, we just recently did our pre-series A in January where we raised around $10 million. The valuation of the company at that point in time was $50 million. Now we are headed towards our series A, which is going to happen in June. We already have interest from global institutions, some very large funds, you know, uh, we are generating a lot of interest globally as we speak, you know, and I'm talking about both crypto VCs and non-crypto VCs. So we're planning to raise another $50 million by June, and we're set to do that. So as far as the institutional funding is concerned, people love what we're doing, people love the pace at which we're delivering. And I think this is what the 
crypto industry also needed because there's a lot of the same. If you look at most of these crypto projects, you know, there's all speculation. Whereas this is a company that is actually converting a speculative asset, taking it out from a speculative asset class and creating content, which in my opinion is, is a really sustainable asset class, right? It's, it's one of the most resilient asset classes that is there because it's going to make you money even after 10 years if the content is good. So in that sense, we're the first in the world that is capitalizing on an opportunity that existed on the content side. So that's the funding when it comes to the institution. Now, as far as the content funding is concerned, the fundamentals are based on the fact that, you know, whenever there is a transaction that happens on our decentralized uh, exchanges, there is a tax so M content is built around tax, which we call the CCF tax. CCF is content creators one. On every DEX transaction, there's a 4% tax that goes in into this collaborative funding ecosystem. And at all point in time, you know, you have a sufficient amount of funds sitting there. And then we create like a, it's like a democratic process that we've created where all our token holders have an opportunity to be a part of the content investment that is happening, right? Just to give you an idea of how this works. We've already funded content around, you know, $5 million worth of content till now in the past six months. And at this point in time, we have another 10 million sitting in the CCF. So, and it grows every day because now our trade volume on different exchanges is roughly $12 million a day. So you can calculate, you know, how much money is going into content every day. And that's why now is the time for us to really go out and look for the right investments. Because at the end of the day, this is a model that is bringing in the funds from our retail investors, right? Because retail investors, they like to invest in the best asset classes. There was no platform for them to invest into content, which in my opinion is one of the best asset classes out there, right? You mentioned earlier on uh, Watch to Earn, the M content platform. So first of all, where do people find that on the internet? It's on the app stores. You can go, there's a web version as well on our website. You can go uh, and you can also go and download it on either of the app stores. Um, and instantly, you know, when you start watching, content on the platform you'll start earning you know from the very first view okay and that reciprocates which means that the content creator is also earning on every view and the viewer is also earning so it's amazing because you know just um, yesterday i was speaking to someone and in the last 48 hours we've had like almost 2500 videos you know you know the youtube model because at the end of the day the issue with youtube is that 99 percent of the youtubers they never make it to the Minimum level where, where you get monetization. Where advertising comes, clicks in, yeah. Which because, is what, about a million million views a video or something yeah, like that? It's, it's, it? you know, it, it's based on the watch hours. It's based on uh, how many subscribers you have. It's very challenging, right? Yeah. Whereas on our platform, you're making money from the very first view that you get. And what you're getting is a digital currency, right? Mm-hmm. And this digital currency right now, it's small base. You know, we're sitting at $80 million. Everyone knows that good projects within the crypto space. So there's so much potential on the upside, which means that the creator is also going to hold. They have the option to convert into cash if they want, whatever they're making. But 90% of our creators, as we see, are holding on because they believe Mm -hmm. that after a year, this is an asset that is going to grow. So there's an upside. There's monetization from the very first view. Then uh, there's obviously better monetization compared to the existing platform. And the upside is what is really, you know, disrupting the space, I believe. If I downloaded the app now, what's sort of the most 
popular video. Is it all short form, I, I would assume? It's short formats. You will see some unscripted documentary films. You know, there's a documentary film which is an hour and 30 minutes as well. So you'll find different formats. And then there is some syndicated content, which is like movies of 60 minutes, 90 minutes, but that's syndicated. So I'll tell you how it's structured. Primarily, there are three sections on the platform, which is the first one being the M Originals, which is the movies section. This is where we feature all of our original productions. Till now, we've done some shorts, documentary films, you know, we've done an animated cartoon series. We're funding as we speak. We funded some independent filmmakers. There was a web series that we did in Nigeria. So all of that you can see there in the original section. And then when you scroll down, you'll see a lot of these different genre of movies, which we've syndicated for different markets, because obviously we wanted to populate the platform in order to have our own content. It's going to take some time, right? Yep. So, so we entered into some distribution deals and, you know, we signed up uh, some existing content that was available. Uh, so people can also get into long format watching, right? So which is the first section, which is long format and uh, scripted, unscripted. Uh, then you go into mbrowse. mbrowse is like the YouTube on our ecosystem where anyone can have anything. You know, you, you'll find videos about supercars. You'll find videos about people making fun of their cats. You know, you, you'll find videos about, you know, people playing with their babies. Um, so if I did, if I did a short form video, a telecast video of MIP TV, I could actually edit that into a 15 minute short. Yeah. Put it onto the M content platform. Yes. On M browse, you can upload anything through your account and you have the subscriber base. You have the views count. Every subscriber you're getting, every view you're getting, you're making money. Okay. Okay. So, well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. So what are your ambitions then for MIP TV? Because, so we're talking about democratizing the content space as the ultimate vision, but you mentioned you'd done some deals with distribution companies. What are you actually going to be doing in Cannes this week? For example, producers that are listening to this, what is their opportunity with M content? Um, see, so we're funding content in two major categories, right? One is because, as we said, our ethos, our fundamentals, why we were formed is to give an opportunity to the independent filmmakers who don't have funding opportunities, right? So, you know, there's a fixed portion in our funding budgets, which is going into new creators, you know, new independent filmmakers. There's an entire process on our platform. You go into the MC section. If you're an independent filmmaker, just press the apply for funding button. There's like an option for you to upload a pitch video, which is like your three-minute video where you explain what your project is all about. And people have the option to download and upload on the platform. The applicants who are getting the highest amount of votes, they come into the curation model that we have. You also attended one of the shows. That's right. And we're, yeah. and we're trying to scale that up. So we try and bring in, you know, experienced judges on the final selection. Yep. And that's where then, you know, we fund one or two. Every two weeks, we try and fund two independent filmmakers. So it's almost like a Dragon's Den, isn't it? Dragon's Den for content a little it bit. It is, it is, it is. But obviously, we're trying to scale it up now. You'll see this becoming a proper reality show as we go right now it's more of a youtube format um that we've been doing so that's category one Mm -hmm. which is probably not the people who here at no those are independent maybe student (laughs) filmmakers people are just just coming into the industry just starting yes but the second area so the second area because we follow like a 80 20 model because you know this fund is growing at an enormous space so what we've done is that we've applied an 80 20 rule which means that we invest 80 percent of our budgets on 20 percent content that we would like to claim as M originals, right? Which is the kind of content that we're here for. Yeah. Twenty percent of the budget goes into eighty percent, which is the seats. 
So here we are for two things, I believe. One is obviously for that 20%, which takes 80% of our investment. We're already speaking to some large studios, uh, global firms for co-production partnerships. We're getting into formats. We're getting into film. So that's the core idea. The second thing, obviously, is to also get into distribution deals for the next one year, because as you understand, it's going to take us around one year before we have enough populated content of our own yeah. on the platform. Okay. Until then, this watch-to-earn model needs to work, right? It yeah. can't really work only for YouTube videos. Yeah. That's so there. You, you need to create a destination exactly. of interesting catalog of interesting content to just start the, the exactly. ball rolling a little bit. Exactly. So we're, right now we're populating the platform as much as we can. Yeah. Obviously, considering that the real budgets need to go into new creation because it's all about new creation at yeah. the end of the day. But yes, so existing formats we are trying to pick up. Speaking to distribution companies globally, we already have one partnership with the distribution company. So that's okay. that's how it's going. Interesting. So, so you're taking part on the blockchain panel at the Telecast Content Funding Festival which is happening in London on the 26th of April. So that's that's great for you to be part of that. During that day, you will also be available to meet producers for yes. pitch meetings for yes. these M originals, essentially. So there are opportunities there for producers to come along and pitch you uh, projects and ideas, and they may come away with a, with a commission. Of course there is. Of course there is. See, traditionally, the model of crowdfunding in content, you know, and I have a really good friend who recently, you know, completed a film. She also got an award. Uh, she used crowdfunding also in her production. Traditional concept of crowdfunding in media is charitable, you know, it's philanthropy. Whereas we need to move it towards ownership. At the end of the day, we need to make viewers into owners. And that is powerful, right? So I think my message to all the producers who's listening, all your followers, um, there is an opportunity here to create ownership of what you believe in for the people who are going to watch your content, right? And that is massive because the possibility, imagine right now when we consume content in different forms in a day, sometimes, you know, we see advertising in there, which is forced advertising. We don't like it, right? But tomorrow the model is going to change because in, in our vision, we believe that two years from now, viewers are actually going to own 80% of all the content that they consume in a day. Right. And that's powerful, right? Yeah, very powerful. So, so yes, my message is uh, please do approach us while we're there and we'd love to work with you. But at the end of the day, we all need to understand that there is so much scalability. Also, you know, a message to a lot of filmmakers who do their film for cinema. They never make it to cinema, right? Because of box office restrictions, funding, budgeting. So one thing that I missed is that we've also created the world's first cinema, which is for the metaverse. Um, maybe you've seen some yeah. stories about it. So it is an immersive experience that we've designed. We call it the M-Content Cineverse. So as a creator, if you have a film which is already listed and you're unable to get it to cinema, have that landed on our cinema we will help you mint NFTs and sell tickets for that cinema. And uh, whatever money comes in, we, we keep a very small share of that and all the revenue is yours, right? So we're not just funding. Yes, we are funding, then we are curating the journey. We have our own streaming platform, which is fully tokenized. Then we also syndicate content. So some of the content that you see on our platform, we've also syndicated it to other platforms, right? Mm. So that's also making money for the creator. 
And lastly, now we have our own cinema for the metaverse. So it's an entire ecosystem that we've created. The cinemas, by the way, was designed in partnership with PwC, which is a global firm. There are tech partners and there are some stuff that is happening right now, which is very, very revolutionary because you know how the world of metaverse is changing. So we are in talks right now with some of the leading owners of the metaverse space, which means that the cinema soon will exist somewhere. You okay. Know, right now it's in isolation, but tomorrow it's going to exist somewhere. So yeah, that's who we are. Well, it's it's very revolutionary in many ways, Omer. So uh, thank you very much for joining us here in uh, in Cannes. I look forward to seeing you at the Telecast Content Funding Festival in a few weeks' time. Good luck. Have a successful few days. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here, and I look forward to the conference. So MIP TV is often about future gazing and looking at trends and audiences that are perhaps moving away from traditional TV and it's always something that that we see broadcasters and producers to a certain extent perhaps struggling as they're losing market share and and audiences are starting to go towards different platforms for example. So my next guest is a TV futurist and consultant in this area, it's Sandra Lehner. Hi Sandra, welcome to Telecast. Hi Justin, thanks for having me. Not at all. First of all, before we talk about a few of these subjects that are about Gen Z, maybe touch a little bit on the metaverse and some of these other current and future trends, tell us a little bit about you, your background, and how you came to be a consultant and a, and a futurist in TV in this area. <laughs> I'm originally from Germany. I went to film school. I started out writing for telenovelas and daily soaps in Germany and developing drama series. So my background is television. I know television very well. I also attended the entertainment masterclass. Maybe some of your listeners know of it. And then I realized in Germany at the time nothing was ever gotten commissioned. So I moved to the UK from one day to the next and I became very interested in social media. So I first started working on a YouTube channel called um, Copa 90, sports channel. They're super big now. And I realized the power of social media there because I produced a show called The Eurofan and we crowdsourced our local staff. Then protagonists for the show, the locations, everything via social media. And then I got the offer to be a social media producer on Made in Chelsea. And I did Made in Chelsea, Downton Abbey, uh, Sherlock, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Then I got an offer in Zurich, Switzerland, from a social television channel that brought my two backgrounds, television and social media, together. And I moved to Switzerland and have been working in brand entertainment for the past six years. I've always been interested in the future of entertainment. What's the next big thing? And I've been writing for MIP blog for almost 10 years now on the subject, the future of entertainment. It's actually interesting. Sometimes I go back and I read my articles from 2014 <laughs> or 2013 and yeah. I realize a lot of that has happened. I don't know. I, I can't look into the future. I just I see trends and I, I guess I have a feeling for what might work and what's just um, going to go away in a yeah. couple of years. Yeah. yeah. So you, for example, would have probably seen Quibi 
coming and then crashing and burning a few absolutely, months later. Absolutely, actually, yes. I mean, we all knew. I think, I think the whole TV industry, I think we all knew that um, it's going to fail because they just didn't understand digital. And, I mean, I tried watching a couple of the shows and, you know, it was mobile first. So I watched it vertically. And then after a while, I realized if I turn my phone horizontally, that they actually shot it horizontally. And that when I watched it vertically, I missed a lot of what was going on in the frame. Uh, well, that was and the first mistake. Right? That was because, the first mistake. Yeah. And then another huge mistake was you couldn't share the content. If we see something funny or crazy or entertaining, we want to share it with our friends and we want them to watch it as well. And that was a big mistake as well, that they didn't think about the community aspect. That's something that clearly a lot of entertainment companies have, have probably learned from that mistake. But also we're seeing the rise of lots of different digital channels that are cultivating their own audiences and essentially digital natives. So they're coming from a, a much different space. You're here at MIP TV to run a panel on esports and TV. Tell us about that. Yes, it's about how traditional media can be inspired by esports. I'm not a big esports expert, I have to admit, but I think especially the community aspect is really important when it comes to esports and i think um, this is something tv producers should learn if they want to be successful in the future we'll no doubt be uh, reading some of the uh, the coverage that's going to come out of the the back of that panel which is uh, which is going to be fascinating coming back to tv and gen z which is kind of your sweet spot if you like we're seeing more and more that gen z are really turning their backs on traditional TV and linear TV. And they're starting to adopt different platforms and consume content in different ways that really they're creating their own ecosystems and creating their own communities away from television. And that's going to be a really serious concern if you're a big media business now, uh, you know, where things are going to be in five years' time. How can broadcasters and producers capture this elusive market or recapture it or be make themselves relevant to that audience how can they get that audience to watch their content and consume their brands and and build audiences again in in that demographic Mm -hmm. so two important aspects Uh, gen z are the most diverse generation ever so that it's very a fragmented audience if if you will and it's the first digital native audience so they grew up just you know on their ipads and you know iphones they don't make a difference between youtube and television for them everything that's on a screen is actually tv so they don't even make the distinction yeah i I heard of parents telling me that their kids there when they actually watch television that they're surprised about the commercial breaks because they had not seen this before because they grew up with youtube streaming mainly so you have to think digital first and there was an interesting media study by deloitte last year and it said that their favorite pastime is video games and then watching tv and movie is their fifth favorite pastime i just thought 
TV producers need to know this. They need to wake up and, and realize they can't go down this road if, if they still want to be relevant in the future. I think there are three strategies how you can reach them. You either go where they already are on video games, uh, platforms or social media, or you um, integrate an influencer that they are familiar with. Um, this is what Netflix and Hulu are doing currently because they bring the audience to the platform. So Gen Z, they follow people. They don't follow shows. This is also something that TV producers should keep in mind. And then the third option is, in my opinion, that you use IP that they're already familiar with. Also Netflix, great example. They have a lot of movies and television shows based on Wattpad stories, for example. What's Wattpad? Wattpad is a digital storytelling platform, and it started out as fan fiction. I think it started out young girls writing about... One Direction. <laughs> okay. So they had, you know, their fan moments with Harry Styles <laughs> and wrote about it. But, for example, The Kissing Booth is based on a Wattpad story on Netflix, Like a Feather on Hulu, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. So, so Netflix has been really successful with this strategy. Okay. And I think the next big thing, I think we're talking about this a little bit later as well but now the buzz here is nfts <laughs> so reese witherspoon's company hello sunshine they are producing now tv shows and movies based on world of women nfts and i was talking to david kleeman yesterday who was on your podcast as well and he said that time studios is doing the same for kids shows so it seems like this might be an another source of inspiration in the future. Okay, so just explain that. So they are they are developing TV shows based upon... An image, basically. Based a upon digital an image. image, yeah. A digital image, right. Okay, well, that's going to be a challenge for any producer, I'm sure, to, <laughs> to create that. They're nothing but, uh, but extremely creative. Other than the traditional TV networks, because essentially they've kind of lost that audience already. And, the, and you mentioned a couple of strategies to regain them, to have these influencers bring these audiences back to, to their platforms. But we've also seen the development of digital formats. Companies like Future Studios, formerly Barcroft Studios. We've seen uh, a whole little dark with lots of different businesses that are starting to create high quality unscripted multi-platform content for these audiences and build their own communities and build really sizable communities is that the way to go for a producer then to build that audience yourself to build that brand to build those formats and then perhaps build those formats into tv at that point so for example Future Studios has a format called Agree to Disagree, which is extremely popular on uh, across m multiple platforms. We might see those sort of shows coming into traditional linear TV and bringing those YouTube and TikTok and various other multi-platform audiences to TV. Is that the way forward, do you think? I think that's the way forward, yeah. Because that's exactly what... The streamers definitely and, you know, traditional broadcasters 
as well should be interested in because you're moving the audience. You already have an existing audience and you just move it to your platform. And I yeah. think this is the way forward. Rather than trying to be this sort of uh, uncool dad, if you like, and create a format and expect the audiences to come to you, you've actually got to bring the audiences to the channel that's already there. The community's already there. This is also very interesting because... I, so I worked in advertising as well as in entertainment and the advertising industry they're so much more focused on their target audience so you know everything about your target audience before you create something and with tv producers in my experience at least they have an idea that they want to tell but they don't think about the audience my All-time favorite um, Gen Z drama series. I know it's an old one now, but uh, Scum from Norway. And I know that Julie Andem, she was traveling across uh, Norway, I think for a year, interviewing Gen Z about their problems, about you know their experiences, about their dreams. And Scum was massively successful because of that, because she understood her audience. And I think that's that's important. And that's why all these influencers are so successful, because on, they're on the same level as their audience, and they listen to them. Again, the community aspect. I listen to what my audience wants to see. And then based on this, I create something, It's just an anecdote from my experience. So I mentioned Copa 90 earlier. And um, so I produced a show called The Eurofan. And we had a big budget. Um, Gillette was the sponsor. And we traveled to all the Champions League games all over Europe. And so it was very expensive traveling there, you know, getting tickets for the games. The most successful show on the channel probably still, was called Comments Below. And it was just two guys, two, you know, football nerds talking about the game and then answering the comments of the people and that left that the, the audience left in the video from last week. So they were interacting with the audience and just chatting, basically. It was the cheapest show ever. Just these two guys sitting on a sofa, you know, talking with the audience, basically. Yeah. And it was the most successful show. Well, it was a ba basic interactive <laughs> entertainment there and it's in yeah. its purest form, if you like. The metaverse. Now, we touched on that in the MIP TV preview with David Kleeman. Uh, you know, I think many people might have breathed Uh, a sigh of relief when he said, oh, don't worry, it's not here yet. But I mean, <laughs> where do you think the opportunity is for today's content industry? Everyone gathered here in the Palais. Where is the opportunity, would you say, in very briefly, where would you say it is? For TV producers, they should look Alter Ego. I think it's on NBC in America. And it's a talent show, a singing talent show, but you don't see the people they have avatars. So you don't see the human beings behind it. You just see their avatar. I read an interview with Will I Am, who is a judge on the show, and he said he's already thinking about what the winner of the show could do next in the metaverse, could do a concert on in, in Fortnite, for example. This is an easy example of how you can imagine the metaverse and the television industry coming together. Okay. You can imagine, reimagine you know, grand designs or Project Runway because you create digital 
assets basically for the avatar. Yeah, I think that's an easy way to explain it. Okay. All right. For maybe the older audience. And then when it comes to Gen Z, it's obviously Fortnite and Roblox, what's happening in, in yeah. there. And so I'm interested in Roblox, particularly at the moment, because there's Big Brother in Roblox and Survivor. And it's just fans rebuilding their favorite shows, which I think is really interesting. And actually, David Kleeman told me yesterday for Squid Game, there are more than a 100,000 Versions. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He told us about that. That was, uh, that's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I think, yeah, when you look at a younger audience, it's probably more the video game area when it comes to metaverse. But for the older audience, maybe just look at Alter Ego and get inspired by what's okay. happening there. All right. Okay. <laughs> Finally, NFTs. You mentioned them earlier on. I mean, are NFTs over or are we only just starting to see the beginning of the? boom or maybe bust of nfts who knows what do you think i think there's a huge hype about the bored apes and crypto punks and i've been thinking about will these nft be worth anything in five years and i'm gonna say it now i don't think so right. <laughs> this is my okay. prediction <laughs> all right but i do think that nfts and the blockchain in general is the future of financing when it comes to a TV shows and movies, because again, like you, you have a community and you ask the community to produce a show together and then they're part of it. You know, they're, they made it happen basically. And I, and I think that's has very strong value to uh, the yeah. super fans at least. And I think there are some interesting things you can do. Uh, I'm a big fan of Gary V and uh, he has V friends basically. So he, he does some, I don't know, I think cat drawings or I don't know what he's drawing but he sold them as NFTs but basically you get a lifetime of his workshops and seminars with this NFT and it's kind of like a ticket into a, a club and I think this might be the way forward and then also storytelling wise there's actually quite a lot happening in this space I saw a mystery thriller series where you could buy clues with NFTs to get ahead, you know, of other viewers. Okay, so we should maybe and look at NFTs as almost just like an entry point. You know, it's not just literally a digital asset that you own the IP to. It's actually what that creator could build on in terms of value, mm -hmm. you know, to that NFT holder. Yeah, I'm not interested in NFT drops. I, I think this is over. You know, everyone has done it. It's, yeah, great for super fans. If you want to own a digital image of a TV character, then yeah. great. But I think it's more like, you know, if you're interested in collecting in further engaging. fan articles. Yeah. yeah. But I'm more interested in the financing aspects of it and then how you can integrate NFTs in storytelling. Like what I mentioned earlier with Reese Witherspoon's company. Yeah, and also how to integrate them in, not just base it on an NFT, but also integrate the NFTs yeah. in the storytelling. It's fascinating. Well, we had uh, Umer Masoom from uh, M Content on earlier on, and he was talking about the ways that they're utilizing the blockchain to finance content. It's really fascinating. And his company, it sounds like, it, you know, it's, it's really gathering 
some momentum there so, uh, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on that as well yeah and I think it's also I mean just to uh, wrap it up I guess what I what I said in the beginning is all about your communities you have to create a community and like we mentioned earlier Gen Z is so fragmented you have to get into a niche and and actually I think Netflix is doing a really good job in in this area because they're creating verticals a comedy vertical k-drama vertical and they're serving this audience and then it's easy to you know sell them nfts or whatever it is at the end of the day but you have these super fans you have a very engaged community and this is the way forward in my opinion point. sandra thank you so much for dropping in and having a chat with me for telecast really enjoyed your discussion and people will obviously be able to google your panel session and have a look at what was discussed there enjoy mip tv thank you my next guest this week is Willem Prouschus, CEO, founder and owner of Dutch Filmworks. How are you doing, Willem? Uh, not too bad. The sun is shining. The drinks are good. So it's a little bit of old can. That's true. That's true. It is a bit nippy, though. It's certainly nippy by the sea, but sunny anyway. So I'm sure we're going to be seeing some sunburnt foreheads around by about sort of Tuesday or <laughs> for so. For sure. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So you run and, and own and founded Dutch Filmworks. Tell us a bit about the company and what you're going to be doing in Cannes this week. I'm not going to uh, tell the whole history, but we started 25 years ago. And this MIP reminds me a little bit of the early MIPs I came, which were quite small and cozy. And it's now small and cozy again. We started as a video distributor looking for uh, catalog titles and TV series. That's 25 years ago. Slowly but surely, we emerged from an, a video distributor to an all rights distributor. We have a theatrical company. We do TV series, a lot of documentaries. We start distributing everything the screen could fit. And about seven, eight years ago, also, we started in productions, more or less by coincidence. But very soon after we started, we bumped into this cozy little company called Netflix. They wanted to do business with us. At that time, I didn't actually uh, know how, how big that business would grow. But we were like thinking alike. They were thinking out of the box. We were thinking out of the box. Because until that time, and still a lot of production companies do that, they make something for a broadcaster or they make something for a, a streamer. As soon as they have the order, so to speak, to make the series or to make the program, they make it and then they see what's happening. What we do, as we're, we're, we are located in both Holland and Belgium, we try to collaborate with people. We try to set productions up between different countries, as Netflix asked us to do that. So one of our first series we got involved in, uh, outside the movies where we were already involved, was uh, the series Undercover. I don't know if you know it. You know, where there's a big Belgian component, there's a Dutch component, and we brought it together with the VRT and Netflix. And we think about the potential a product can have within the territory. And that's why we've grown quite successful in TV se series, also now in documentaries, and movies we, we, we already were, to combine different countries. And our next step will be outside Holland and uh, uh, Belgium to set up co-productions with various countries. We don't think like a traditional producer, 
we think like, how can you make the best out of it, not only financially, but organically? How can you get a thing which the streamers like, a broadcaster likes? And that's what we are doing. So this co-production is your starting point, essentially. Yes. yes. That's interesting. Yes. Tell us about what you're bringing to the market that's new this time. This is quite interesting. We have uh, three new products to the market. We have one TV series, a documentary series, called Voices of Liberation. That was set up between Holland and Belgium. Uh, it's about the Second World War, but from a completely different angle. Uh, but we have this actors, uh, directors, writers, famous uh, from France, Belgium, Holland, Germany. And they have all have a link with the Second World War. And through their link, we set up the story from how the Western Allies reconquered Europe. It's the angle which makes it interesting. So it's family ties, isn't it? It's essentially yes. people now looking back to their ancestors and how they were involved yes. in the struggle for the liberation of Europe and Second World War, but in France so we visit, in the UK. Yes. And, and we in- visit the places. For example, the, the, the great-grandniece of uh, the bad guy in Schindler's List. Uh, Golf, Eamon Golf. Was- yes. Yeah. And his granddaughter is a famous German writer. She's in it, so she tells about how bad her grandfather was, what he did, and that's the angle for that episode. And then we go in the past, of course, talks, you know, letters, uh, images from that that era. So we bring current to the past and back again. So, and that's like, actually, we finance it, we produce it out of Holland and Belgium. So in Belgium, we did it for streams, and in Holland, we did it for Netflix, but it's a setup, it's a European setup, because, you know, there are a lot of countries, a lot of nationalities involved. But that's like a typical Dutch Filmworks item, where you can bring more countries in an organic way together. Absolutely. So we have presenters out of every country, a Dutch presenter, Belgium, France, German, so... There's relevance to each each market. There's a reason for each market to buy yes, it, essentially. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. And th- so that's a, that's an important thing. The other thing is we did it with Dengi. We co-owned that production company. It's a Belgian production house. It's called Hect, and it's in Cannes series now. So it's uh, uh, one of the ten who may win the prize. So that's really, it's a web series, uh-huh. 10 times 14 minutes. Done for streams in Belgium, but a television a broadcaster picked it up for Belgium. And now we have all these countries. Hey, that's interesting because, you know, we, we've shown the product and everybody says, hey, we want to have this remake material because it's about youngsters, you know, in high school and their phone gets, gets hacked. And what happens? That's a new thing. And the other, we brought it to the market. Uh, that's a totally different thing. A movie documentary about Louis van Gaal. He's oh, the yes. famous Dutch coach. That's right. Then the, the director followed him for two years. Actually, it was one and a half year. And then he announced he came back as, as, as uh, the, the, the coach of the national team. So we had to start. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> we well, start again. He's an interesting character. Isn't Fuck, he? he's, he's interesting. He's got no filter, right? I oh, mean, absolutely uh, not. No. And that, that must be made for a fantastic documentary if you're so are you still following him now no 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 no, because we're going out theatrically in holland next week oh oh and we're going wide wide yesterday we launched it in a tv show in holland you know where he was his guest where he could you know promote his own 
documentary and it was like two million viewers last night. It was amazing. Just trending topic on, on, on Twitter because in the documentaries, he reveals a lot of stuff. Okay. He reveals. Well, I'm love. sure that we're going to be seeing that on a stream. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You absolutely. can't give us any clues yet about No, bias? no, I can I can reveal what he told, but it's it's not really appropriate. It's all over the news because, you know, he, he's terminally ill. Right. So it's uh, nobody knew that. Right. Nobody. Okay. And actually, we yeah, we know it, of course, a couple of a while, but it's like how he deals with it, how he is, because he's coaching the national team during, you know, the... the, the with this illness, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. Maybe he lives for another 20 years. You never, yeah. you never know, but he has a, a bad form of cancer. So, right. But that's one of the things. His first wife died of it. So everything is It's like an, this documentary. It's not about his being succe- him successful in, in the soccer uh, world, but he is, it's about him. It's a human story. Oh, you, you, you cry. You yeah. cry. When I saw it, I cried. And I'm not a crying guy all right okay <laughs> not that i'm the standard but uh, everybody who's uh, seen it is is uh, is uh, wow it's touched by it okay. it's touched all right so, so that's what we bring to the market and although for that typical program we just think you know who wants to buy this you know about a dutch coach you know his personal life his feelings and everything and then again when the MIP started this morning, a lot of people asked, you know, by mail or they dropped by, you know, can we have it for Germany? Can we have it? It was really interesting. All right. Wow. Okay. Because it was trending. It was like on Bild, you okay. know, the, 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 the magazine. Right. On, yeah, yeah. Uh, Manchester United posted last night because he was, yep. he used to be coached there. Yep. And everybody, you know. They've got uh, a bit of a social media presence. So that's that's helped you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so how are you finding the market then, Willem? I mean, you said that, you know, you were, you're a, a veteran of the uh, old days of MIP oh, TV. Jesus now Christ, we're yeah. back again for the first time in three years. How are you finding the market? Yes, I, I, it's like a market again. You meet people, you talk to people, you you connect, and that's you cannot do that by Zoom, no, or per, per email or Twitter or whatever. I met in this today. It's now only like uh, four o'clock in the afternoon. I had my first meeting at nine thirty, and I met like already five six people. Jesus, that's what I really missed, and that's what why this market. Not only this one, but these marks are so important. You meet, you interconnect, you you get ideas. Only I'm getting ideas by sitting here. You yeah. know, it's it's, and that's what makes uh, a market uh, like this uh, important. And it's not as big how it used to be. People are complaining, and you know what's going to happen. But I feel a vibe again. It's yeah. like the allies are busy. There's a lot of meeting going on. I I, I see. So many people, and that's... There's a buzz. There is a buzz. So everybody says, you know, these markets are gone. Forget about it. They are a lifeline for new ideas, new new connections, setting up things between between countries. That's how I see it. Willem, thank you very much for your time. It's been lovely to speak to you. Good luck with the documentaries and and all your other projects. And... I hope to see you uh, on the Quasset later on. We might uh, we might have a beer or something. Maybe two. <laughs> One of the great things about coming to TV markets is you bump into people that you don't expect to see. And I've bumped into somebody in the sunshine. I've bumped into one of the oldest guests on Telecast that listeners to the very first shows will remember. 
It's Gertz Lisa. It's Gertz. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. How are Thank you? Thank you, Justin. Thank you. Well, Gertz, so you were at K7 Media back in those dark days of lockdown when yeah. we were talking about trends and you were bringing us some incredible information about formats that were being developed and how the whole TV industry was coping with this mm. unprecedented catastrophe that we're hopefully at the end of and uh, yeah. coming out of now. So tell us where you are now because you've moved on. Yeah, that's the reason why we always kind of parted because at my new job it wouldn't be like fair, let's say, uh, to to continue doing telecasts. So I'm working for t- ITV Studios already like more than 15 months now. Okay, and you're in Amsterdam. Yes, I'm based in Amsterdam and, and I'm looking after distribution of uh, our non-scripted catalog, like pretty much uh, according to United Nations, close to 200 countries, right? <laughs> because right. <laughs> I look after all these countries where we don't have our own production. So it's, okay. it, it, so you can calculate if it's 13 countries we have our studios, then yeah. the rest is <laughs> my umbrella role. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's a big job. <laughs> and you're just the man to take it on. And we had uh, Ayan from ITV Studios on the MIP TV preview show. So it was great to chat with him. You know, here we are two years after the first telecast, mm-hmm. just about. And here we are at the first MIP TV for three years. So what's changed, do you think? What's changed forever in the TV business? And, you know, how... Are we going to move out of this as an industry stronger, if we can? That's a really big question. I mean, uh, I, I, when, when you started this question, I was thinking of a little bit like, not funny, but a bit funny answer. But it really <laughs> requires something a bit more depth. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I, it got more profound as it yeah, went yeah, on yeah, that question. Yeah, but, but like yeah. the first part I was thinking probably is that, uh, and I really hope it stays, that we have... Actually, in a way, we have become more relaxed here at MIP because if you remember all the MIPs before, it was like this crazy rush of 30 minutes, you know, like I know people who had like 60 meetings in three days and now we actually see so much better results when we have a proper chat, when we can sit down like for an hour and talk, not just running through the catalog and the news in our catalog, but but just talking about kids and dogs and everything else because it's as you know, it's it's a relationship business. Do you think we've kind of come to incorporate a little bit more of that into our daily lives anyway as well? Because I think it, it maybe changed our views of our crazy, hectic lifestyle flying around the world and perhaps not being as good to the planet or ourselves. And then all of a sudden, you know, we were forced to be at home and perhaps reevaluate the time yeah. that we spent. And maybe that is something that we take forward in the way that we do business? In a way, yes. But but on the other hand, I think the overall thing is that we need these personal connections. The question is where we get them, whether it's these big markets like this or somewhere else. Like I myself, I was in India last week you know, before I was in London. So I'm really happy, sorry to say, not being sustainable right. <laughs> and, 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 and getting this travel back because it makes such a big difference. Yeah, You know, like in one week in India was worse probably all these two years of uh, Zooms and everything else, right? Wow. I think we have talked about it actually in, in, in also on your podcast that uh, being a bit skeptical whether there is need for two huge MIPs a year or things like that. So I think it's... Um, 
just more flexibility, more diversity, um, uh, which we look forward to. It's 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 the same like uh, with the formats. If we talk a bit about formats as well, I don't. I feel like it's not anymore so much about structured genres. It's it's more about human stories, and basically you kind of adapt the genre to the human story rather than like uh, precisely put in boxes. Now it's game show, now it's whatever. But like it's more like first you find the story and then you think about creating that box around it. Mm. I think in a similar way, maybe it's with the markets and how we how we do business that, that we kind of approach it a bit from a different perspective. Yeah. Have you been walking the uh, the halls of the Palais yet? Does it look like there's plenty of business being done? Yeah, it- like you. I can compare with October because I was also in October. And yeah, it definitely looks improving uh, in, in the Palais. I remember I, I felt really sorry for some colleagues who had stands back then because it seemed like, yeah, a bit like a ghost town. Then now uh, it's somehow, maybe because it's spring, spring is in there, so... Um, it feels like people people are again here, and um, even like uh, again, if we are talking formats, I, I met already so many of my um, colleagues from other uh, distributors. Which last time I just remember I was sitting uh, at at one table at, at Majestic, and the Jan Selling was sitting at the next table, and that was it. We two of us, and then I was uh, leaving before Jan, and he was still asking me sold out, and I said yes. So. <laughs> That was October. <laughs> but it's, it certainly seems a bit buzzier, doesn't it? It really does no, no. seem that, you know, there's a lot of people about... Cafe Roma has closed, or it's certainly That's been crazy. renovated. And New York, New York as well. Yeah, it's so gone. Stressing, um, so, right? So, yeah, it's, there's a whole big Stressful. rebuilding program, which I think anybody who was... Back in uh, can in the in the day, I seem to remember this. You know, roads being being dug up everywhere. There's obviously a big uh, uh, reconstruction program happening. But yeah, there's there's quite a a lot of work, and and I've heard a lot of producers having to change their lunch meetings yeah, from the uh, Cafe Roma. The same. Gertz, thank you for coming on. It's lovely to see you again. Thank you. And will we see you at NEM later this year? Will you be there? Uh, not sure, but uh, yeah, I can I can pop up in different parts of the world now. So, Which I, sounds like it. Well, make sure you offset <laughs> your carbon emissions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Gertz, Lucis, thanks so much thank for coming you. on. Great to see you. Take care. So to round up this week's MIP TV special show from Cannes, I'm joined by Lucy Smith from RX Global. Lucy, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Justin. Slightly exhausted after this amazing last few days, but doing very well, thanks. I bet you are. Well, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to have a quick sit down. So this was the first year of the new look MIP TV. How's the event gone and is it everything you expected it would be? It's better than we could have expected. We have delivered on the transformation we wanted to make, which was to resize MIP TV, to transform it, to give companies different ways of taking part, adapting their and scaling their um, levels of participation. And the energy has been incredible. You know, having those really great big networking spaces where you can have round tables and workshops and conferences people really get together and talking to each other in person again alongside 
what you expect from a major MIP market, which is the main stage with uh, amazing keynotes. So, no, it's been really has exceeded expectations, I'd say. Pretty much everybody I've spoken to on the show so far seems really glad to be back together. The sun's out. People are back to meeting, debating, eating and drinking together, which is something that we perhaps in the past took for granted. When it's taken away, you know, you realise how valuable that is. So can we detect a little bit of a buzz returning to industry markets, do you think? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think the conversations I've been having are very much about, you know, yes, we've learned to do things differently when we didn't have the markets, but nothing replaces that. And just being able to meet with people face to face and seeing them and feeling them and sharing emotions, that's what it's about. And nothing really can replace that. So yeah, there may be some changes in how people will, you know, adapt their calendars. And we all know that. But Right now, what we're seeing is a real sort of joy to be back at a, a spring MIP TV dates, which are, you know, it's the 59th MIP TV, believe it or not. Wow. And I have to say that, you know, these spring dates are solidly booked in the calendar. So tell us a bit about your personal highlights from this year's MIP TV. There's so many of them, but my personal highlights, I think the, the most sort of emotional highlight I would say I want to share is when we, we brought together the Ukrainian industry, expecting maybe a dozen people, and they have brought 80 Ukrainian delegates because there's nothing more important than them being able to promote, sell, co-produce, and get the stories from Ukraine out to the market. Um, and we organized a session where they had put together an amazing reel of content just to show what's, what's coming out of there. So we were delighted to really be able to host them with us. Other highlights include, I mean, I, you know, I always love the moments of the heavy hitters on stage in Cannes and having, uh, you know, guys like Kevin Mayer and Reddy Reckman talking about, you know, a real next generation media company with these huge acquisitions. HBO Max, which just sharing the, the global rollout. I think we're talking about getting to 190 territories by yeah. 2026. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. And as well as some of the awards. I mean, Cecil Frotkutas, an amazing woman. You know, we've, we've worked together with Variety. Um, she had this uh, wonderful award presented. And another highlight, we've always felt that the MIP platform should also be used for, um, you know, what we call sort of change for good and the importance of the industry stepping up around certain subjects so we we had the third united nations supported event which is the mip sdg award and we introduced a new one this year so we've uh, presented that to the association of commercial televisions around disinformation but then we have this really cool innovative new um, entertainment media company it's a, the year of youth um, and it's around young people who are making all these amazing couture they're called junk couture out of recyclables and that's the kind of thing that you know is unexpected and with a fashion show, which was just incredible. So yeah. there's many highlights, but those are just a few of them. So can you tell us the delegate numbers and the buyer numbers? As always, everybody's always keen to know how many people have, have been here and, uh, and buyers. Can you give us a bit of insight into that? Yeah, of course. I mean, we were, we were really thrilled by it. We've had over 5,000 delegates here in Cannes, as well as a few hundred online who haven't been able to get to Cannes. Out of those, I think we have around 1,200 buyers on site. And also, you know, what's hugely important is also all of the producers and the co-producers and the 
Um, you know, companies talking about uh, development, distribution is key, but the uh, the rest of the uh, production and the content uh, conversations have been happening. Um, 150 plus stands with uh, U.S. majors back in town, with different ways, different divisions. But you know, that's made it a really exciting uh, show to be at, and we've heard that people's. Uh, Business diaries have been very full. Yeah, uh, I've so heard that too. A lot of people have been perhaps not back to the, the kind of almost overwhelming back-to-back of years gone by, but right. people have said that they've had, you know, lots of meetings and those the, those meetings have been, you know, very positive and energetic, yeah. you know, which is was great to hear. Right, and I really think that the days of you having to have only those 30-minute back-to-back meetings that's what we've just been going through on you do that on zoom and teams every day but actually taking a bit more time because you have that personal contact yeah i think people are beginning to learn maybe you need to adapt and yeah. have a little bit give a bit longer and get more in-depth conversations if yeah. you have to talk a bit more about development well, that's right especially as we've been apart for so long you know just just coming straight back into that half an hour back to back seems Seems slightly inappropriate in a way, you oh, know. The, 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 the yeah. you know, sitting down and maybe sitting in the sun and you know having a coffee or a beer or a rosé and yeah. being able to rebuild those relationships in what is really a you know a relationship-driven business. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, I don't know how many people you you saw giving big hugs and kisses to each other and saying we haven't seen each other for like two years. Yeah. I mean, and that and it's like when you need to get that glass of rosé together and you know walking up and down the quazette later at night and bumping into people again yeah. all of those wonderful you know shared moments um it's been it's been really incredible to see and well looking forward to october already i know we're always looking forward in this industry can you give us any insights about this year's mipcom which is happening in uh, as ever in the calendar in october yeah absolutely i think what we can say about mipcom coming up in october is that yeah everyone's going to be back bigger Outside again, we'll have a lot of our many outside exhibits and tents, and you know the people you are used to seeing will be will be back and more. And we believe that you know MIPCOM really does need to also adapt as it's always done with the industry. And obviously, I think over the past few years, there's never been more important focus on the creative community and production community. And we will be absolutely a home for that community, and all of the streamers will also find their place at MIPCOM and we're having many, many good conversations. So we've got a lot of announcements to make. They will be coming out soon and there will be some really exceptional red carpet moments that I cannot talk to you about yet, but there's some very exciting projects that are going to be coming up soon. All right, well, we look forward to hearing more about that, Lucy, in due course, but congratulations on a fantastic event that everybody's enjoyed. So thanks again and we'll see you in October. We certainly will, Justin. Maybe next time we'll actually manage to get this glass of rosé we keep saying we will have together. I know, I know, I know, that's <laughs> the it. The show's just too busy. Yeah. But no, thanks a lot and it's it's great to have uh, have you with Telecast here at the show. Well, that's about it from Sunny Cam. I hope you enjoyed the show. We've just announced our first event, the Telecast Content Funding Festival, a unique new industry event created to bring content producers and financiers together to explore the wide range of production funding options available today. With delegates and panellists already confirmed, from Channel 4, ITV, BBC Studios and Leading Indies, it takes place at Lincoln's Inn in London on Tuesday, April 26th. 
Tickets are strictly limited and on sale now at telecast.com forward slash events. And our early bird ticket promotion runs out on Friday 8th of April, so move fast for the best ticket deals. We hope to see you there. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in Cannes. Until next week's show, as always, stay safe.